welcome to You Got This, a podcast about teaching and learning and sustaining community for everyone at Thompson Rivers University. I'm your host, Brenna Clark Gray, Coordinator of Educational Technologies, and this podcast is a project of your friends over at Learning Technology and Innovation. We're housed within open learning, but we support the whole campus community. I record this podcast in Kamloops Te Shwetmuk within the unceded traditional lands of Shwetmukulu, where I hope to learn and grow in community with all of you. And today, I'm thinking about time passing, I guess. Well, let's get into it. So exciting news in my world. My small person turns five years old this week, and we just got word that he'll be going to French Immersion in the fall. It's super exciting to think about his future. (laughs) And it's also kind of overwhelming to think about how early choices in education start. I found myself talking about this with our guest today, so I'll save some of these thoughts for then. But It's all about excitement and anticipation. We were talking about heading off to kindergarten and kiddo said to me, mom, I'm mostly excited, but also I'm mostly nervous. (laughs) I said to him that I feel that way most days. I'm mostly excited about education and also I'm mostly nervous. Yeah, he definitely takes after me. In and amongst all the fun things this week, uh, wrapping presents and baking cakes and calling the vaccine hotline to find out if he's eligible, yay, he's five, (laughs) all those fun things. In addition to them, obviously, I'm really thinking about time and how quickly it goes by. Everybody tells you it's going to be fast, and then you are actually in the middle of it, and it's even faster than you imagined. Anyway, all this to say, I've been a little bit maudlin this week, but also, you know, I'm thinking about the excitement of education in those early days. You know, we were at a a kindergarten roundup on Zoom last week, and in that session, they were talking about, you know, all the things they do to keep kids excited about learning and that wherever your child is on, you know, those milestone checklists, it doesn't matter as long as they're excited to be going to school, that the number one marker for success is, are they excited to be going to school? When did we lose track of that as the most important piece, hey? I don't think I've ever thought about how one of my course outcomes or a central part of my pedagogy could and should be infusing an excitement to learn. Like I think about engaging students in the topic, of course, and I think about ways to share my own joy with my learners, but that intrinsic motivation of being excited to learn Wow, it seems to me like we really dropped the ball on that somewhere around, I don't know, the end of grade school, maybe. It was so interesting to hear all these early childhood development specialists and kindergarten teachers and folks involved in the school board, and they were all reinforcing this message of, you know, just keep being excited to learn and reinforcing it for your kiddo. I've been trying to do that this week. 
especially because he's turning five right now. I am in my feelings. Try not to let that out too much. One thing we've been doing is um, because he's starting French immersion and because my own French immersion days are a long, long time ago. In fact, here's, here's a story about the way we incentivize or disincentivize learning. I dropped out of French immersion in grade 11 because it was bringing my average down. And so even though I liked French and I knew it would be useful to have, I was worried that it would ultimately tank my chances at a scholarship for university, so I dropped it. Biggest irony in the world, as you'll hear later today, none of that mattered in the first place. (laughs) Gosh, we send the wrong message about school to kids. Anyway, so I've been thinking about this excitement about learning. I downloaded Duolingo and I've been practicing my French. I read online that Duolingo is not so much a good app for learning language as it is a good app for making you feel good about learning language. And that's definitely true. I mean, it's gamification to the max. But I also am just thrilled every time I realize how much is still trapped up there in the cobwebs of my brain. Anyway, I was talking about this with kiddo. and You know, I'm trying to brush up on my French so I'll be able to help you when it's time. And he said, it looks like a game. And I said, well, it kind of is. That's what makes it fun. And I realized, you know, we give gamification a bad rap and, and we talk about sort of the unseriousness of the millennial student. That was what we used to say when I was the student. Now we talk about the unseriousness of the Gen X student. But surely the joy, the internal motivation, that's the thing that matters. Everything else is just content. And, you know, as Dave Cormier talks about, we live in a time of content abundance. You can get your content anywhere. That drive to want to do something with it, that's what moves you from A to B. My kiddo seems to have that right now. I think most five-year-olds do. I guess it's my job to try to keep that spark going, even as the structures and the institutions of learning make it harder. And maybe it's also my job to remind you that the spark is really important. I'll try to keep that in mind. A bit of a gear shift here as we switched into interview mode today. I'm really thrilled to be talking to Pamela Fry today. She's in a new role as a wellness program coordinator for suicide prevention here at TRU. And so as her title implies, we're going to be talking pretty frankly about suicide and suicidal ideation on the show today. So if you're not up for that, that is fine. Please feel free to hit pause and come back later or delete this episode from your phone. No hard feelings either way. Please make sure you're taking care of yourself. If you're struggling with thoughts of suicide or feeling overwhelmed by emotions brought up by anything we talk about today, you can call the Regional Crisis Line Network, 1-888-353-2273, or you can call the Provincial Suicide Line, 1-800-SUICIDE. In both cases, Calls are answered by folks trained by the Interior Crisis Line Network. They support these types of difficult conversations throughout the interior region of BC. I'll share some other resources uh, in the show notes today, so please don't hesitate to check those out as well. And now I'm going to hand it over to Pamela. So today on the show, another return guest, a second return guest in two weeks. I'm so excited. Um, I have Pamela Fry here today. Pamela joined us last to talk about the Early Alert Program, uh, but she's in a new role now as Wellness Program Coordinator for Suicide Prevention. And I think this is something we need to talk about more on campus. So I've invited her to 
to do exactly that. Um, Pamela, would you mind saying, you know, who you are, how long you've been around TRU, and maybe where people can find you on campus? Sure, Brenna. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm I'm really excited to be here talking to you again. Um, I'll just start by saying that I'm super grateful and excited and happy and proud that I am a guest in to Kamloops to Shaquemek Territory. Um, I live up in Sun Rivers. It's just beautiful up here today. The sun is shining. There's little chuckers running all around outside. And um, I'm just feeling really blessed. So I want to start with that. I'd also like to say that, yeah, we are going to be talking about suicide today. And, you know, if anybody out there is feeling like they're not ready to listen about this conversation today, it's okay to step away. I am a suicide attempt survivor, and I also, unfortunately, have lost someone quite close to me to suicide. So um, it's a topic that's very close to my heart. It's very important to me. And um, I'm just glad to have an opportunity to share some of what I've learned. Can you tell me a bit about your role now at the Wellness Centre? Well, I assume you're at the Wellness Centre. I'm actually jumping in. I don't know. (laughs) But your role as a wellness program coordinator and and particularly, like, I think, is this a new role, the suicide prevention focus? Yeah, it is a new role. It's, um, It's funded partly through the CMHA BC Healthy Minds, Healthy Campuses um, program. So they funded this role. And unfortunately, it's a temporary role. So you're actually catching me about three weeks before the end of my um, work on suicide prevention on campus. So um, we are hoping that there will be some more funding, possibly from the university, the province, um, to carry on the work that I started working on over the last nine months. Uh, That's yet to be seen. Um, but for the next three weeks, yes, <laughs> I work out of the Wellness Center. I have an office across the hall from the Wellness Center, and I do a lot of work from home as well. My my work has involved a lot of research and writing, and that that piece of it goes better for me at home. But yeah, I'm very closely linked to to the Wellness Center, and I will be doing some more work around mental health uh, for the Williams Lake campus during the spring. What do you think the campus community doesn't know that they should know about either about your role or about suicide in our sort of campus population in general? I think people would be surprised to know how normal it is. For, and, and I use that word cautiously. Um, but But many, many people at some point or another particularly university-age students, consider suicide. Um, It's not that unusual. And another piece of that is that even though we always take a disclosure of suicidal ideation seriously, it's not always an emergency. So I think a lot of people operate in the thinking that if someone says that they are thinking about killing themselves, ending their lives, that we need to call 911. And Mm. that is just not always the correct response, that there are other ways and other choices we can give people who are in that type of distress that can help them. I've been reading a lot more lately, and I'll include some some sources in the show notes, but I've been reading a lot more both from the perspective of folks who work in abolition and, and folks who work in disability studies, that calling 911 can be a real escalation and it can put people at risk in ways that we don't always maybe think about or aren't necessarily aware of. 
Yeah, I, I think that's very true. And I think, you know, a real shift has happened in our perception of what 911 might mean. And, you know, I do not want to cast aspersions on first responders because there is absolutely a time and place, you know, if someone is, um, you know, actively endangering themselves, has ingested something potentially toxic, there's definitely times when calling 911 is the right thing to do. But what I'm asking people to think about is, you know, how might the person who's in distress feel about 911 being called? So, you know, ever since Black Lives Matter, most people in North America have asked some hard questions about how those types of services have treated people of color, for example, or Indigenous people um, historically. And those are still some very profound feelings of distrust, distrust that exist among those communities. I guess the question then that we've begged, <laughs> um, not to put you in sort of the, the hot seat too early in our chat, but if not 911, then what? If I'm a faculty member with very little understanding, maybe I've never taken a suicide first aid course, I don't have a lot of context for the conversation, and a student discloses to me, what what do I do? That's a, that's a really important question. And I think people are scared um, about making a mistake if someone discloses to them, and that's why 911 kind of seems like the easy go-to. But there's a couple things I would suggest. The first thing is that if someone opens up to you about feeling suicidal, the best thing that you can do is really validate those feelings. Be the, be the good listener. I hear what you're saying. I believe you. You must feel scared. That must feel very lonely. Thank you for telling me. So validating that the person has come to you with something that's very, very important and serious. I think that's the first step. The second thing is to remember that many people who are experiencing mental distress know on some level what they need. And there are choices of what people might need. So even if you aren't familiar with everything on campus that's available, you know we have a financial aid office. Maybe the person is in deep distress over, for example, debt. Maybe getting them to the financial aid office is something that would help. We have a medical clinic. We have counselors and so on. So I think, you know, offering an individual in distress a choice is a really important part of validating that they still have control over what will happen to them. The problem with calling 911 is that it makes people feel like they've lost control. It's out of their hands now. And it doesn't have to be that way for people to recover from suicidal feelings. I think part of it is that it's really difficult to talk about, right? Like, I remember I took a suicide first aid program when I was uh, volunteering on a crisis line as a graduate student. And it was the biggest stumbling block in the world for me to recognize that asking someone direct questions about suicide wouldn't cause them to act on thoughts of suicide. And I really struggled with that because I think there is sort of a culture-wide taboo that maybe is starting to break down that really seems to fear that the conversation is is the problem, when really the conversation might make people uncomfortable. But problem is death by suicide. Yeah? Yeah. No, I, I agree. And I think that, you know, I hope that we are getting closer to being comfortable talking about the subject. But 
Um, I think it's we've got a ways to go yet. There is still a lot of shame around suicide. So, for example, in families where a child perhaps has died by suicide, parents may blame themselves. And having a public discussion about that experience can be incredibly painful or even impossible for some people. So, yeah, the the conversation about it is really difficult. But yes, the point that having the conversation does not cause anyone to actively harm themselves. And in fact, having the conversation allows people to share that they need help. And that's really important. Um, We've mentioned counseling services. We've mentioned medical resources on campus. I wonder if there are other resources that you would point towards as being, you know, significant or useful or places where either people could go for help or as a community, we could go for more information just to understand the situation better. Sure. Well, there's so many places, first of all, on campus where students can find support and encouragement and help. And, you know, of course, I'd be remiss not to mention the Wellness Center, um, which is a really wonderful space where there are, um, you know, peers there that you can talk to or just collect some information or sit quietly and relax. Um, Indigenous students have Kapulkatin, the gathering place on campus. There are often elders there and somebody always ready to pour a cup of tea. Uh, The chaplaincy is another place. So what I'm promoting is that people really think about Um, what they need. Um, An individual in distress might need a a quiet visit to the library, or they might need to go and have lunch somewhere. Um, People's needs don't fit into the the boxes of straight to counselling or straight to the medical office necessarily. For some people, that might be the right choice, but I'm hoping that people who are learning about how to accept disclosures will recognize that people are going to get the kind of help that's best for them. It might be a walk in nature. It might be a talk with an instructor. Um, But just to think a little bit more broadly about what kind of support the individuals need. There's a a Twitter account that reminds you to go and have a glass of water or go and eat a snack. And I'm amazed at how often it's really useful. You know, we we can be so singularly focused on, particularly when we're trying to solve a problem or we're trapped in a difficult space and just... It's easy to forget that uh, things look a lot clearer when, you know, you're not dehydrated and you're fed and you've maybe gotten some sleep or some rest or you've done something pleasurable, right? These things that can often feel like we have no time for them and no space for them. I We've turned self-care into this, like, you got to go buy a bath bomb. <laughs> you've got to, like, do a two-hour meditative retreat when sometimes self-care is just like, have you had water today? <laughs> Right? Simple, the simple things. And when you're when you're helping somebody who's in distress, those simple things can go a long way. And, you know, everybody's busy. It's hard. If a student comes to the office who's in distress, you might be in the middle of an email and expecting a phone call and all of those things. It can be difficult. But if you can take that extra time to do those little steps, it makes a big difference to, to students for sure. And I would also say, just to add on to what you're saying about, you know, how we perceive our own wellness, we're in such a culture of success. And that can be a wonderful and inspiring thing for university students. But we're also supposed to be in a culture of learning. And learning doesn't happen without mistakes. And sometimes those are kind of big mistakes, especially if you're 
19 or 20 and very far from home in a culture that you haven't been part of before. And I think it would be nice as a campus if we could get behind the idea that part of learning is making mistakes and that it's okay to make them and that we will help you fix them. Because I I think a lot of what causes students stress is if they do make a mistake, if they do cave into the pressure and plagiarize an essay, for example, or rack up their dad's credit card that was only supposed to be for emergencies or make a mess of their first relationship, something like that, that they can't recover from that, that, that it's so shameful that they're here. They're supposed to succeed. They're supposed to become these scholars or these, whatever it is they've signed up to become, but they can't afford to make one mistake. And I'd like to see that shift that you're going to make mistakes. You are going to do things wrong you're going to do things you might even regret a little bit, but that we can help you move past them. It's really easy to forget as you get distance, particularly from the early 20s. And I know not all students who find themselves in this situation fit that demographic, but there is something about that time of life where things feel so important. Everything feels so critical. And often it's your first time experiencing, maybe it's your first time experiencing failure or breakup or, you know, whatever. I remember how difficult friendship breakups were at that stage in life. And as you get a little bit older, you come to realize that like people have seasons in your life and not that it's not painful, but it doesn't devastate the same way. And I think one of the sad things about the way we often I guess it's part of the aging process, but we get so distant from that particular kind of heartache. I think it's one of the reasons why when I first started teaching, I really fell into young adult literature in a big way because it was just really helpful to be reminded of the scale of those emotions and that they're real, right? Like it's easy to kind of scoff from a perspective of been there, done that. And I think that that's not helpful if someone is in distress to not treat their concerns as though they are real concerns. Yes. This is our, it's interesting that you're bringing this up because this is the second time this has come up today in conversation and mm-hmm. I was speaking earlier today um with an elder in the wellness center elder doe and she was reflecting on how challenging it can be for younger students who are in the throes of a first romantic relationship and maybe have not had modeling Mm. of of healthy intact families at home and so the model that they understand about what a natural normal uh, relationship looks like is from TikTok or (laughs) there hasn't necessarily been those models around and um, and yeah that heightened sense of despair over well this relationship didn't work and I'll never get over it and there's that compression of time that happens when you're in that phase of your life. And another thing that's happening is that you are, you're becoming yourself as well. And so you're also like creating a new, a new you in a way, as you attend university and learn about all these new ideas. And it is a lot to uh, integrate into your life. Yeah. Like it really is. I mean, it's kind of wild, yeah. you know, and, and we do make the stakes so high culturally. I was, you know, my, my little guy is starting kindergarten 
And we just found out he got a spot in, in the um, French immersion program, which is really exciting. But it's also like, I don't know. I mean, I know he can change programs and stuff, but you think about him being five and this feeling like so important. Um, and we do yeah. it to kids all the way along, right? It's like, <laughs> I, I, uh, I stressed out so much all through high school about my grades. And then I ultimately ended up dropping out of my first university program and going to a program where no one ever saw a single transcript. It was like, a, it was just like, that never happened. And I think yeah. we don't talk enough about how there's very few things that are unsalvageable or immutable um, in life, right? Like there, there are multiple chances and multiple opportunities and multiple paths. And I think often we give this false message that, you know, you have to do your degree in four years. You have to hit all of right. these benchmarks. If you fail that course, well, that's it for you. And none of that's true, right? Um, but I think about the stress that we carry around those false beliefs, ultimately. We do. And we we feel like we have to stick to the narrative that we made up when we were 15. You know, whatever it is that we said we were going to do. You know, if we change our mind in our second year of university, we're going to get called out in some way as if there's something wrong with with changing your mind and forging a new path or discovering that that turned out not to be what you thought it was going to be when you were 15. Of course it didn't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. And and that can be, you know, le- the practical matters are that sometimes when you change your mind like that, it can be expensive. Mm-hmm. It can be an expensive change of mind. Um, it can be disappointing for people in your circle who maybe were cheering you on on the path you had originally selected and are not so keen about the secondary route. <laughs> so it can be, it can feel really scary to think about, well, I just don't want to do this anymore. I want to do this other thing. And we need to be like, we need to be on the court with those students that are trying to make those changes and support them and make it easier and make it cheaper and make it possible for them to, you know, we all love this word pivot (laughs) to whatever is the best thing for them. Yeah. Yeah. It's so important because, you know, it's your life, right? Like if it's It's not fulfilling, yeah. I guess if we can circle back to the conversation about disclosure for a moment, if a faculty member or a staff person on campus finds themselves in that situation of being disclosed to, are there supports available for them? Like after the fact, like what would you recommend to someone who's feeling um, the emotional weight of, of having been through that conversation? I'm glad you mentioned that because that is, that's definitely a gap. And um, I've been reading a lot. It's the services that you're talking about are called postvention services. So it can be anybody that's been touched by suicidality, whether a disclosure, losing someone or uh, yeah, bereavement. Um, on campus, we have the limited resource that's offered through the employer, which is LifeWorks. Right. And it can be useful for um a sort of a one-time debrief. I think there's a three-session limit on the counseling services, but unfortunately, and much like our own counseling services for students, there's a long waiting period mm. to, to access those services. When I talk to people who work on campus who come in contact with students in distress, they invariably tell me 
that their support system is their colleagues, their closest colleagues, and that that's what sort of keeps them afloat emotionally. And on the one hand, that says a beautiful thing about teamwork and about how we do support each other on campus. But on the other hand, it points to a failing to provide adequate, private, timely support for people that that take on the responsibility of supporting students in distress. Yeah, because I bet it touches all corners of campus. And I think we probably don't, the majority of us not working in this space probably don't realize how how many folks are touched by it every academic year. Yeah, and I think, you know, if it's something that doesn't, I, mean, I do agree with you that it happens all over campus. I think if it doesn't happen too often, if you're not really familiar and this can happen, it can really leave you with a feeling of unease mm. about, you know, how much should you follow up with the student and what, how much of responsibility is on you. And one of the ideas that I've been talking about with um, Andrea Bassard, who is a counselor in Kapolkatun, and uh, Nathan, the director of TRUSU, is this idea that we want people to understand that they are just one part of a network of care. So you don't have the whole responsibility, but you have the responsibility to do your part, which is to get that person connected to somebody else in the network. And that somebody else might be, you know, the receptionist in student services. If you can get the student that far, now they're still part of the web. They're still part of the network, still connected. And Val, who's works there in student services, will make sure that they get to the next person they need to get to. So for people who accept these disclosures, that what they need to realize is the whole weight of that student's, you know, distress doesn't need to be on them. They need to share it with the student's consent and connect them to somebody else. It's, I like that metaphor of the web, right? Because it it's such a strong structure. It's so much str- stronger than an individual can be. Exactly. And we do have, you know, there's so many people that want to help. There's so many people available on campus who want to help. And there's no reason why an individual faculty member or staff person should have to carry that weight by themselves. I guess we're sort of coming up to the end of our time together. And I think the thing I want to ask is if you could leave the campus community with sort of one thought or one idea to carry with them about suicide and our campus community, what would it be? Do you have sort of one thing that you just wish you could put in everyone's ear or one thing you wish you could put in everyone's pocket? It's a hard question, but, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the concept of dignity Mm. and that if you can allow people to experience their lives Good, good times, bad times, um, with a sense of dignity around their experiences. I think you can protect. I think it's a protective factor. Students who feel that they are sort of at the mercy of an unforgiving system, who, you know, are forced to live in certain circumstances, forced to act in certain ways or conform to certain regulations. I think all of that can create a great sense of shame. So uh, what I would like to say to the campus is, you know, put yourself in that student's place. What degree of dignity will make you feel safe to ask for help and support when you need it? 
It's really powerful because it's a real change in the way we think about education to center dignity like that. I think that that is a pretty profound change. I don't know that people, even as recently as when I was an undergraduate, I don't know that people talked about protecting dignity in that same kind of way. I don't think so either. I think there's a real acceptance of the lowest common denominator. For students especially, there's sort of an attitude like it was so, you know, it was really hard when I did it. I had to eat ramen for 10 years. Do we really want that? Is that the experience we want for students? What about if we made their lives rich with experiences, with nourishing food and comfortable, safe, communal places to live? What if what if they had dignity in those aspects of their lives? How would that change what they were able to bring to the university experience? Uh, it's, that's such a good point. You know, we tend to, the academy as a structure is very guilty of kind of having this hazing mentality, right? Yeah. I went through it yes. and it was terrible. And therefore I will Did inflict you? it upon others. No, I just mean that seems to be like, whether it's, you know, comps in grad school or frosh week misery or whatever it Mm -hmm. is or yeah the starving student sort of the starving Mm -hmm. student as like a trope as opposed to a very real suffering that we actually do have the resources to alleviate if we want to yeah I think that that's um I'm, I'm glad you raised that because I think that's a very concrete way that we can make things better are you doing this because it's the way it was done to you or are you doing it because yes. it's the best way forward? And they're not always right. the same thing, you know? Exactly. Yes. And we know that students are going to learn more and be able to contribute more, both of those things, if they're living comfortable lives. Yeah. I really appreciate the movement lately towards including sort of basic needs information in course outlines and things, you know, like where do you make contact with support services on campus and um, listing them all in a, in a way that really normalizes the idea that this is a difficult experience that you go through with the support of a community and that we are a community here to support each other. But you really have to be in the habit of reinforcing that message, whether it's in the classroom or through whatever engagement you have with students, um, because the default mode of the structure that we're in is not to be a supportive community. That has to be sort of intentionally pursued every day, I think. It does. People have to be reminded and, you know, we need to really examine the structures that are punitive um, and and that might be harming students who, through no fault of their own, are in a learning process. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be a good thing, right? <laughs> Being in a learning process. It's supposed process. to be amazing. Yeah, it's supposed to be amazing. Yes, and exciting. And yes, learning can be painful. Absolutely. We, you know, I've certainly experienced learning experience where I thought, darn, oh, ouch, hurt to learn that. But, um, you know, you should be able to merge out of that and and feel like it was a good experience. And I think that's what we'd like for the students that come to TRU is to emerge out of TRU and feel that they have grown in a way that's meaningful and in a way that was flexible and really permitted them to be their full selves in blossom. I'm such an idealist, Brenna. I don't know what to tell you. Where I don't, it must be because the sun's shining today. <laughs> Raining, you want to get a totally different interview. <laughs>
I think that that idealism is a perfect place to leave it today. Pamela, thank you so much for your time. And beyond the scope of this interview and this conversation, thank you so much for undertaking this work because, you know, this is, this is heart work and this is emotional labor and this is difficult, um, but really critical. And, and I'm grateful that you're the person doing it. Well, thank you so much for having me again, Brenna. Um, I just, I think you're a gem and uh, I hope we get to talk again soon. Me too. Take care. Take care. Before my usual sign off, I just want to remind you of those two phone numbers. If you're managing thoughts of suicide or in crisis, you can call 1-888-353-2273 to talk to someone 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also reach out to 1-800-SUICIDE. In both cases, those calls are answered by folks working with the Interior Crisis Line. So that is it for Season 2, Episode 18 of You Got This. As always, if you want to write to us, you can email me. I'm bgray at tru.ca, and I'm also on Twitter at Brenna C. Gray. In both cases, that's gray with an A. All of our show notes and transcripts are posted at yougotthis.truebox.ca, and of course, you can always comment on individual episodes there. I'm going to leave you today with a tiny teaching tip, and my tiny teaching tip is a reminder that next week is reading week. Can I gently suggest that you take a look at your syllabus and see if you're actually giving students a reading week? Oftentimes we make major essays due as soon as students come back, or we up the workload right around the time of reading week. Students need this time for sure to focus on their studies, but they also need rest. The last two years have been hard, and our students need supported resting time. It's also a good way for us to model to them that time off and true self-care, not commercialized self-care, but actually resting and recuperating, nourishing ourselves with good food, drinking water, getting exercise, these are all things that matter. And you can model that for your students by doing it yourself and talking about it, and also by making sure that when they do have time, like reading week, they can actually attend to some of those things that are about the care of the self. We all have benchmarks we have to hit and learning objectives, but we are also all in the care of human beings. And so I hope you'll consider taking a look at your syllabus, your course outline, and looking at what you have due after the reading break and making sure there's space there for your students to take a rest. Indeed, we're going to be taking a rest. We'll have a show next week to celebrate the TPC and then we'll be taking some downtime. So I'm going to model it too and y'all know how hard it is for me. Until next week, I hope you'll take care of yourselves and each other. I'll be thinking about you. Bye-bye.